right now, we should begin to recognize, as the Pentagon Papers could have revealed to people, but didn't quite. Smart guys can pursue insane policy, extremely murderously. They don't care as much about other people as you imagine human leaders would, but you're wrong. Human leaders don't. And we can show that with enormous amount of data over the last 2,000 years. This is a conversation with Daniel Ellsberg on Doomsday, still hiding in plain sight. He's the author of Doomsday Machine and one of the most impactful whistleblowers in human history who successfully stood up against violence and for truth and potential incredible cost to himself. In 1959, Ellsberg became a strategic analyst at the Rand Corporation and a consultant to the Defense Department and the White House, specializing in problems of the command and control of nuclear weapons. After working on the escalation of the war in Vietnam, he worked on the top-secret McManamara study, U.S. decision-making in Vietnam, which later became known as the Pentagon Papers. In 1969, he photocopied the 7,000-page study and gave it to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In 1971, he gave it to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and 17 other newspapers. Ellsberg's subsequent trial on 12 felony counts, posing a possible sentence of 115 years, was dismissed on grounds of governmental misconduct against him, leading to the convictions of several White House aides and figuring in the impeachment proceedings against President Nixon. Since the end of the Vietnam War, Ellsberg has been a lecturer, scholar, writer and activist on the dangers of the nuclear era, wrongful US interventions and the urgent need for patriotic whistleblowing. 50 years after the release of the Pentagon Papers, we discussed the value of whistleblowing, how close we came to global destruction back then, which lessons are applicable to future wars, and what is demanded of us if we are to survive the next 50 years. This conversation is part of Foresight's Intelligent Corporation Group, leveraging computer science and crypto commerce to improve cooperation across human and other intelligences. You can find the lecture notes and program at foresight.org and apply to join. Could you perhaps pick us up on the thought process that brought you to take the actions that you did? Maybe in particular, what was going through your mind as you were photocopying the 7,000-page Mac and Amara study? Because that's really quite a long time to be standing at a photocopying machine. So I wonder if you had any qualms, if you could have you know, imagined having taken a different path in that position and whether... The, uh, if you had known that a potential of 115 years in prison um, uh, would would be awaiting you, um, then uh, would you have would you have made any other uh, decisions in that regard? Well, as I've often recounted, uh, I had learned from Mort Halpern, who was an aide to Henry Kissinger, the special the assistant for national security, Nixon's secret plan was, as he said, to end the war with honor. But what that meant to him was that he was trying to win it within a year, and when that failed, within a number of years, with the uh, prospect, as I saw it from the history of the war, that uh, his threats would fail, including his threats of using nuclear weapons, which he was making already in 1969. And uh, that, therefore, he and then, then that he would carry out the threats, which was not obvious, I th concluded that they were not bluffs, or I bet that they were not bluffs. 
And as he did, he did continue the war uh, through his first term on the ground. He re removed the troops, uh, American troops, early in his second term, which was his deadline for doing that. But he fully intended to continue the air war uh, indefinitely and in support of the Vietnamese troops that we were paying and equipping and training and supporting with air. And by that, to keep his client Tu, General Tu, who had helped win the election for him in 1968, to keep him in power uh, throughout Nixon's second term. In other words, in eight years, he expected to do that. And he was expected to do it by continuing the air power that long. Would the American people have let him do that if uh, in his second term or afterwards, uh, when no American casualties were being uh, inflicted? We've seen that in Afghanistan. That's answered itself. We've been killing Afghans and bombing them there for over 20 years and could easily have kept that up for another 20 years had it not been the case that Watergate revelations removed or forced him to resign from office and um, uh, the war became endable. Actually, many of the charges he faced were based on crimes against me while I was on trial for releasing the Pentagon Papers because um, uh, he wanted to shut me up from releasing possible documents that I had on his threats. The Pentagon Papers ended in 1968 before he came to office. So he was mostly afraid of what I would else I would reveal. And he knew I had some documents on him and he very reasonably feared, but uh, mistakenly turned out that I had documents that would demonstrate his nuclear threats and his plan to keep Tew in power at least eight years. And I didn't have those because people who did have them in his office did not choose to make them public or give them to me, even when they resigned over the Cambodian invasion. Coming back to the immediate, that was then in my mind to try not to uh, simply tell the truth or tell history. My interest was in uh, trying to help end a war that I knew was going to go on for a long period and was going to get larger in the air as it did. He returned to bombing that had been stopped in 1968. And I didn't succeed in that, actually. The Pentagon Papers did not stop the war. They came out in 71, 72 with an ill-conceived offensive by the North, uh, leading to another 50,000 casualties on the North side, like the Tet Offensive four years earlier. Nevertheless, many, many Vietnamese died. Uh, the bombing was enormous. In the Christmas bombing of 72, a year and a half after the Pentagon Papers, was the heaviest bombing in human history for a couple of weeks. So, uh, and then, as I say, the war was uh, fated to go on, except for Watergate. Uh, and after all that background, that was what was in my head. But the what led to the copying was that I witnessed young Americans whom I'd just gotten to know and to admire, actually, were on their way to prison, I learned, to my shock. Uh, they were expecting trial and imprisonment for refusal to cooperate with the draft. And they were not doing that on the base. Of course, they hadn't seen the Pentagon Papers, as I had at that point. Uh, but they weren't doing it because of what most people think was the great, great uh, lesson of the Pentagon Papers. They think that wrongly. In the last month, I've seen innumerable times when the 
message of the Pentagon Papers was claimed to be that officials had known the war was not winnable, and yet they pursued it. That's 180 degrees wrong. The Pentagon Papers show that the Joint Chiefs always thought the war was winnable from the beginning to the end. If only the president would do what they proposed, uh, invade Laos and Cambodia, invade North Vietnam, really, uh, as the French had done, of course, and uh, risk war with China. And the president wasn't willing to do that. So their method of winning the war was never tested. I believe that's very fortunate. I believed at the time and ever since that the Joint Chiefs were totally wrong in believing uh, simply as Americans, let us do all the violence we're capable of and we'll deliver a victory. They were wrong. Uh, in simple terms, they had their head up their ass. They knew they had no idea what they were talking about. And uh, it's uh, and uh, Johnson was quite right. And Kennedy uh, in refusing to go that far. He did know. And uh, the Joint Chiefs told him that what he was doing, which was very murderous, it resulted in the end in, well, under his watch, about 30,000 lives. And he, he bequeathed a war to Nixon, who added another 20,000, a total actually of 58,000 lives and several million Vietnamese. The number there varies between 2 million and 4 million, uh, mostly around 3 million as it happens. Uh, but uh, 3 million lives then as a result of these American decisions. And it's true, nobody really believed that what we were doing would end the war or win the war. But that's not why these people went to prison. And that's not the example they set me. We all knew the war was not winnable by that time. The American people, at least in what we were doing, the American people had concluded that by 69, if, if not earlier, after the Tet Offensive in 68. The people who went to prison and set me the example of asking myself, okay, what can I do now that I follow their example? If I'm willing to go to prison, if I'm willing to give up their career, as they were, what could I do beyond what I'd been doing for a couple of years earlier internally? Advising people on the inside, uh, up to the level of the Secretary of Defense to extricate ourselves from that war. But that had had no effect, even though they took me seriously. But uh, that's not the momentum of the war. Uh, I did think then of other things I could do, including the Pentagon Papers, which was the most uh, dangerous uh, legally. But uh, the others seemed more promising, actually. Uh, but none of it, none of it worked including the Pentagon Papers in, at that time, up through 73. As I say, later, crimes that Nixon took provoked by uh, my actions and his fear, reasonable fear that I would do more than I had done, uh, that in fact did bring him down and make the war endable. But that was, I think, foreseeable by no one. So it was this example of these young men, and as I say, None of the 5,000 Americans who went to prison, instead of being CO or going to Vietnam, conscientious objectors or going to Sweden or going to Canada or having uh, reporting bone spurs like Donald Trump or joining the reserve like George W. Bush, uh, they went to prison to make the strongest statement they could not that the war was not winnable, but that it was wrong. They should not participate in it, nor should anyone else as they saw it. And I saw it the same way they did. 
So the question was then how to tell our fellow citizens, this war is wrong and it should be ended. We don't have any right to kill any more Vietnamese. We don't have any right or need to send any more Americans there to die or kill. And we never did. That was the message to me of the Pentagon Papers. It's been very dismaying this last month to realize 50 years later, that message really never did get across. There was a lesson that had been learned by innumerable wise people uh, for millennia, actually. And it took the form in 19... 44, when I was a sophomore in high school, I should say in ninth grade, actually, uh, in high school, in a sociology class I had, where the teacher introduced us to the notion of cultural lag. Then uh, by a guy named, I think, Osborne was putting it in that form. It keeps getting reinvented, reinvented, rediscovered, I notice, every few years, somehow, for good reason. Uh, the idea was that our technology had shown steady progress and even exponential progress in recent years, but steady progress from for thousands of years, literally go back to the Neolithic or the uh, certainly the rise of civilization, technical civilization. But the ability of humans to collaborate and control that technology had not progressed in the same way, had not caught up with this ability to harm, to destroy with our technology uh, to an extent that we could reliably control it or direct it or avoid suicide. He didn't actually make that point. But the teacher, uh, Bradley Patterson, introduced us to something he'd read about in just the pre-war years, and then there had grown a silence about it. He said, there can be, and probably will be, uh, a bomb created that is a thousand times more powerful than the current blockbusters. Uh, a U-235 bomb, he said. Now, this was a subject of great self-censorship, and the Manhattan Project during that way, which was going on, was highly secret and never did leak to the Germans, as a matter of fact. We had some Russian spies. But uh, I, amazingly enough, uh, something involving thousands and thousands of people all together were uh, kept from the German adversaries. But he said, uh, we didn't, so we didn't know that that was happening. But he said there will be a bomb, U-235 bomb. Whereas a current blockbuster, so-called because it destroyed a city block of buildings, one bomb, was 10 to 15 to 20, the largest were 20 ton bombs. Those could only be carried by the British Lancaster was the only heavy bomber that could carry those. We couldn't, we couldn't carry them, but they dropped a lot of 20 ton bombs. He said, now imagine then that there's a bomb a thousand times more powerful, or as we would now say, 20 kilotons. That was, by the way, the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki about nine months later. Hiroshima, about 15, 13 to 15 kilotons, kilotons instead of tons. So he said, Will this be a good development for humanity or not, on balance? Gave us a week to write a paper about that. Well, now you'll recognize that the same issues are raised today, still about nuclear weapons, but uh, we've had 70 years with that, and we haven't had another nuclear war. That's the, the good news. But you face it, of course, with genetic engineering, with uh, possible... Um, 
uh, climate engineering, you know, release of gas or particles in the sky that will deflect the sunlight, somehow save us a little from global warming. And of course, with AI. And if I can uh, mention one credential on that, uh, when I was in Society Fellows at Harvard, I was a very close friend of Marvin Minsky. A lot of people have heard that name. So that was back in 1956. And 57, actually. It was fairly early in the game. His friend was kind of in on the ground floor on the thought about that, but I, I didn't pursue it. Afterwards. So I did get, uh, my thesis was on decision theory, though, decision-making under uncertainty, obviously related to issues of uh, epistemology and issues of AI. As a result of that uh, interest, actually, in decision theory, I was hired at the Rand Corporation, where my goal of nuclear weapons, I went to a task force in the Pacific under Commander-in-Chief Pacific, Admiral Felt, whose order would get out reliably to the troops that control the, the um, carriers, airfields, that controlled nuclear weapons against China almost entirely because that's all that was in range of the Pacific Command. They had a few targets in uh, Vladivostok area and Siberia, but nearly all the targets of the Pacific Command were in China. Uh, not coincidentally, Eisenhower's uh, plans at that time for war with the Soviet Union, however, it arose over Berlin, Iran, Yugoslavia, or West Germany, anywhere, was to hit every city in Russia and China. China, Sino-Soviet bloc. Had to, you weren't going to just destroy Russia and be destroyed by them, perhaps, and let China pick up all the marbles, quote, as they would say, China be the successor state? No, China had to go if you were destroying Russia. And our plans called for no limited war with Russia under Eisenhower on his uh, belief, very pretty realistic, that war with Russia could not be contained. It would be to the death. There would be all-out nuclear war. We should get the first drop. So any conflict with uh, Russian soldiers uh, above the levels, let's say, of a platoon or a company that might be probing or on reconnaissance or something, but a brigade, a regiment, every city in Russia and China. Any thought of leaving China on was anathema to the Pacific Command because it would mean that the big game was going on uh, against Russia by the Air Force, and they would be sitting there on their carriers with no one to hit after they'd hit Vladivostok. So it was essential that uh, that China stay in, and it did in China, so in, in all these plans. Okay, a, th a thought that I think that's quite relevant to you on your work. I got very interested in the question of might these planes be launched without the president having ordered it. The public was led to believe then to this day that only in the president's football, the briefcase that's always carried with him, are codes that will suffice to launch our nuclear weapons. If he were separated from that, if he were, if there was a bomb that destroyed him, why no one could give that order. That's what the public is led to believe. It's always been false. Obviously, 
are you really going to, how can you imagine to have a deterrence if the Russians with one high explosive bomb or one bullet perhaps could take out the president or take out all of Washington and the Joint Chiefs and the others? No, no. From the beginning, there had to be uh, arrangements for other people, uh, at least field commanders, and they delegated it to others for the same reason, should be able to launch those weapons if they had reason to believe that the war was on and communications was lost with Washington. Now, in 1957, 58, 59, 60, when I was looking at this in 58, 59, and 60, and 61, communications were out between the U.S. and Admiral Felt in Oahu every day on the average, many times for six or seven hours, but at least some period of every day. And communications between Felt, the PACCOM headquarters, and the 7th Fleet in what they called Westpac, the Western Pacific, was also out part of every day. Both of these links were out. That's less true now, of course, with satellites and more cables and whatnot, but still not unknown, as a matter of fact, as far as I know. So here these people were, in fact, on their own. A part of every day. And if they had reason to believe they were being attacked, uh, and we could go into all that, but I, I could think of lots of reasons when they might believe. I, I discovered lots of reasons uh, where they might think they were under attack, as has happened at the national level many, many times, without there being actual attack, it being a false alarm. And since our entire plans have then till now been based on the delusional fraudulent notion that the U.S. will be better off striking first than second, uh, they're all set to go. It's a hair trigger, primed, missiles ready to go on 10 minutes notice or, or less to this day, especially, and they are very vulnerable to attack by enemy ICBMs or even SLBMs, sub-launch missiles. And therefore, if there are indications on the radar and electronics that uh, an attack is underway, they are poised to go first, to get first. You might say, how are they going to limit damage if the other missiles are on their way already by uh, hitting silos? Good question. Uh, there's really no answer to that. The only real warning that makes any use of those ICBMs is, quote, strategic warning, such as uh, being at, at war, at armed conflict. Somewhere, Ukraine, Syria, somewhere else. I don't think it's too likely to escalate from Syria. I think it is likely to escalate from Ukraine. Uh, escalate meaning what? Meaning pretty soon we'll be considering using first, one or the other is going to be wanting to use nuclear weapons. Let it be us first. That's been the doctrine for 70 years and still is. So we're poised on this hair trigger. As I discovered, uh, I don't know how many of you, probably a lot of you, have seen Dr. Strangelove and the movie and be worth seeing it again. I've often been quoted as saying that when I saw that in 64, I felt I'd seen a documentary. But that wasn't just a, an idol uh, in terms of tone. I meant in details in a certain number of things. Let me give you just, just one uh, that almost nobody is aware of. It was a very esoteric matter within the Pentagon. In the movie, 
uh, the planes were set off by a somewhat deranged general. I say somewhat because he was very concerned about the pollution of his bodily fluids by the Russians. I think he was talking about uh, fluoride, if anything. There's a big craze on that. Um, somewhat deranged, like like somebody who believes, for instance, that hydroxychloroquine can solve uh, COVID and uh, the Russian that we have the only supply of it. Or as uh, a smart fool named uh, a Friedman, Tom Friedman on the New York Times, caught my attention a month ago when he said, we must be prepared for conflict war with China because this was really the only reason he gave because of their highly advanced chip industry, semiconductors in, in Taiwan. We can't let the, the Chinese have control of that. And uh, we want control of it, basically. So we should be prepared to go to war over that. No mention of possible alternatives like moving the entire industry uh, somewhere else if, uh, if, if they wanted to go. Or didn't want to be run by China. Uh, but what they're just talking about, what, what, what Friedman was talking about, was a war almost sure to escalate uh, to large conventional war. And since current war games apparently say that with a 20-year buildup, the Chinese now can usually beat us in a war game in Taiwan. Their, their cruise missiles can hit our carriers. We can't just sail up the Taiwan Straits the way we did as recently as 1996 under Clinton to uh, warn them off. We can't do that. Now they're totally subject to uh, to attack. And so when they're talking now about uh, war with China, you're talking about something that will escalate to nuclear war, probably, not certainly. I, it, let me just back off from that and say, the question will be raised and discussed of whether to use nuclear weapons in advance, as our old plans in 58 depended on. They were entirely dependent on nuclear weapons. That's no longer true on either side. But the nuclear weapons are still there in the area, and we still have a president who, unlike China, refuses to say that he will not, under any circumstances, initiate nuclear war. He's rejected a no first use condition, just as Obama did, Trump did, and every president in the nuclear era has actually planned under some contingencies uh, for initiating nuclear war and has never rejected it. So it will get raised. Absolutely. In fact, it was in the Trump administration. Now, here's a little detail that I'll tell you for your technical interest. They had these elaborate uh, conditions for supposedly authenticating. <laughs> Since this is such a technical audience, I, I think I will tell you uh, the following, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't go into with an ordinary audience. To if they got an order to attack, to execute, how would they know that it's a uh, an order from the president? Well, as I've just said, by the way, it might not have been from the president. Uh, that order could definitely be sent by field commanders because of the possibility of decapitation, just as in um, Dr. Strangelove. I think they call it then Plan R. Well, a Plan R, in case uh, the war was on and the president was no longer alive, has always existed. So that was not an invention. Uh, next, uh, though, in the movie, the planes go off and they do. Um, I wonder back.
just got on the way, and then it would take hours. We weren't dealing with missiles at that point, fortunately. So uh, this was 1964 when we came out. So the President Muffley, uh, Muffley Merkin, if you know what a Merkin is, uh, played by the uh, same guy who plays Dr. Strangelove, Peter Sellers, says, uh, call them back. And the chief of, uh, joint, of the joint chief says, we can't call them back. There's no stop order. There's no order that we can authenticate. I, I didn't tell you the authenticate. Okay, I will. From here was the authenticated mission in the uh, in the Pacific. There was they had a sealed envelope inside of which was another envelope, uh, and inside of that was a card. Okay, this is before a lot of digital technology, obviously. So if you get a, a certain code, um, you open the envelope. It's more or less in the film, they see this. And uh, you see on the outside of the next envelope, um, as I, I think it was like three digits or four, three or four, alphanumeric, some letters, some some numbers. If the, they've sent a code, I, I, my best memory is it was a six, a six character code. So if the first three characters are like on the outside of the envelope, you open the envelope. And if the next three characters correspond to the card inside the envelope, um, go. That's a go order. Okay. Obviously, we have better ways of doing it now, digitally, not subject to error, of course. So uh, in those days, I would ask people out there, well, supposing somebody uh, in the plane is out of radio communication, which happened very quickly once they were away from the base. Um, couldn't they uh, send, what if they sent the whole uh, go code out to other people thinking like the guy in the movie, this is the time to go. And here's the answer I got over and over. They can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? They'd have to open the envelope. Say, hmm. You know, that didn't seem an insuperable obstacle somehow for somebody who wanted to start World War III. And I'm telling you, you may think that's a, a caricature here. But we actually went through that dialogue many times. They had to open the envelope. Okay, but if they opened the envelope and sent the code, they could take a squadron with them. And then you would hear, as in the movie, the chief of staff say, the chief, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying, look, if they're on the way, we're at war. But this is a good time to join them because nobody's expecting it. There hasn't been any crisis. There hasn't been anything. This is what um, uh, Buck Turgidson, I think his name is, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, says, let's go. That's exactly what they would have said, almost surely. And the guy who sends them off counts on that. He says, look, I've sent this squadron. You better send the rest because they're on the way. Okay, then the president says, wants to say, okay, they're on the way. Tell them to stop. Now we get to the next point. He's told there is no stop order authentication. He says, Muffley says, how could that be? What do you mean no stop order? He said, well, you yourself made the decision some time ago that if we had a stop code, the Russians might get it and they would abort our entire attack, right? Now, what to do now? That was exactly the situation in the Strategic Air Command. And I don't, at that time, and I don't know when, if ever, it changed. 
for the same reason given in the movie. What if the Russians got the stop code and stopped it? I am saying here now that you'll recognize, you know, type one error, type two error. All the emphasis was on getting the planes over there. Very little on avoiding a false signal, avoiding them going and no effort on getting them back. And what was that about? As other colonels told me, look, the real worry here is that having given an execute order on this pre-planned thing, which was of extreme complexity, like World War I mobilization plans, everything going with its target all timed and everything, the president may get Lily get cold feet in the course of the four, six, eight hours that those planes are on the way and try to stop them. He may believe uh, uh, Khrushchev on the other side saying, we surrender, it's over, we're out. The president will say, oh, whoa, stop this. Oh, no, no. We do not want the president to screw up the plan. So once the order has gone out from anybody, not just the president, now or then, we don't want to bring them back. Has that changed? For, it can't change for missiles, of course. You can't bring them back. Reagan seemed to be unaware of that, by the way. At one point, he talked about being able to bring back missiles. They had to explain to him, uh, no, actually not. And um, uh, But the planes couldn't be brought back either. They were like missiles. Okay, well, you see how, <laughs> how I got into this problem. As a matter of fact, uh, a friend of mine uh, at Rand and then others uh, came up with what amounted to a technical solution to that. Uh, a lock, they came to call it a permissive action link of various kinds. At first, just the combination lock to start with, but that would, uh, the, the go code would be the, the combination to unlock a lock and make the weapon usable. You know, various forms of that, many, many different forms of it called permissive action link. It took a decade to get that, it took several decades to get that on missiles and submarines. The Navy just couldn't stand that idea. They're possibly being paralyzed by a lack of communication. And it took a long time, decades, to get it on to any strategic air command bombs. And uh, they did put it on Minuteman missiles against the uh, objections of the Air Force, a code that was necessary for the launch officers to punch in uh, when they got the order, or you couldn't use the missile. But as Bruce Blair found out as a launch control officer and told McNamara later, Secretary McNamara, by order of the Air Force, all the codes were set at, it was an eight-digit number, 0000000. 000. By order, they should not move to anything else, or you know, you might not get things off in time. McNamara was quite angry, but he was out of office when he finally learned that they had done that. So uh, you can put all these uh, safety devices on and they can help. We, we got them fairly early on the European weapons that were over there at the lowest level. But at what level are the codes actually held? Not in Washington. And I think you can be sure not in Brussels or Paris, or any of the headquarters. Uh, the codes have to be at a lower level to survive uh, a first attack, which is quite possible there. So as far as I know, there's still not zero, 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 zero at the, at the uh, launch, at the actual sergeants and captains and majors that are launching these weapons, but probably not far above them, which means there are a lot of fingers on a lot of buttons. 
actually. Well, maybe let me stop there to, to set the tone. It will explain, I think, why actually my major undertaking in my mind in 1969 was to copy all the top secret notes I'd taken on these problems in my top secret safe at RAND and copy them along with the Pentagon Papers. And I had the full intention of putting them out as soon as the Pentagon Papers had had their run, in effect, had done what they could to help shorten the war. And these seemed much more important to me, the Pentagon, the nuclear issues, uh, including this first strike issue and China, Russia, and all that preemption. Uh, but I thought Vietnam is where the bombs are falling now, and I, I want to stop those or do what I can to stop those. Then we'll get to the nuclear. And just to make it very short, I stored them with my brother in New York, the nuclear documents. They got lost where he had stored them. In a, uh, he stored them in a trash dump and a hurricane or a tropical storm. Doria scattered that trash dump to such a point that he could never find it, though he looked for another year. So I haven't been able to put out much of that, although some did survive. Uh, a top secret study of the Taiwan Straits crisis of 1958, which happened to be my main friend, Mort Halpern, but it could have been anybody. I did have, and apparently I had a copy of that. Out, I don't know how. Hmm. I have to think about that. Why did that survive the others? It, it must have been stored a little differently somehow from the others. I haven't thought through. But anyway, I have it. I had a few other things. I put that out last month, top secret. Two-thirds of it, maybe three-fourths of it, had been declassified in 2006. About a fourth was still top secret, as far as anybody knew. And I put that out last month because I see us moving toward armed conflict with the Chinese in the Taiwan, over Taiwan, which could easily lead by past example of 1958, escalate to a war that no one wanted but a war that one side was thought was better than waiting to be struck wrongly because with nuclear winter, everybody will starve with nearly everybody, not everybody. Let's be precise here. Maybe 90% or 99%, but 1% will survive the global, the clouds of toxic smoke, the toxic isn't so, so important, but smoke that will reflect sunlight, smoke and soot around the globe to a point that all harvests are killed for much of a decade. And uh, within a year or so, nearly everyone starves except for uh, maybe, let's say, 1%, 70 million people, almost 80 million people, quite a lot of people down in New Zealand on the coast, I'm told, or in the coast of Australia eating fish and mollusks. So uh, Peter Thiel isn't so dumb in uh, stocking up silos in New Zealand, as I understand he's doing, uh, if he gets there in time, uh, in a timely way, uh, hoping that there's not a false alarm before him that catches him unawares uh, at ground zero. So um, uh, I thought this is a good time for people to know this, even though insanely that amount is still kept classified. And that's the last point. Um, classification itself is no indication of relation to national security. Now, this stuff is 50 years old, still classified. 
Why is it still classified? Well, there's two reasons. In this particular case, the National Security Archive, which goes Freedom of Information Act requests and gets a lot of stuff classified, declassified after about 30 years, usually, did try to get this 50-year-old stuff declassified in 2006 and later. later. And the Pentagon keeps saying, we can't find the classified version. Well, fortunately, I had it. So I've I've now leaked it into the Pentagon and they can decide to classify it or not. But if they do, if they do prosecute me for this, I think it will illustrate the absurdity and abusiveness of our present classification system and maybe get this issue worked up to the Supreme Court for the first time, which has never addressed the constitutionality of using the Espionage Act against people like Julian Assange, Tom Drake, uh, Chelsea Manning. What should we have done instead of MAD? We were in the situation where both sides had nuclear weapons, both sides were belligerent and had very aggressive militaries, brilliant people at RAND, Thomas Schelling, uh, mutually assured destruction, MAD, was the best they were able to come up with at the time. In retrospect, what should they have come up with? What should we have done instead? It is very regrettable that some ver- some wise, re- relatively and really wise physicists, such as, um, uh, I was going to say Frank, uh, mm-hmm. Frank Report, James Frank Report, Nobel Prize winner, who, uh, as soon as, Germany had surrendered on May 8th, I believe it was, 1945. Very shortly after that, uh, got a group together, uh, especially with Leo Zillard, who had first copyright, (laughs) giving the copyright to uh, the Admiralty, the idea of a chain reaction, and then had been critical in getting a chain reaction started um, along with Fermi in Chicago. And he'd been working on this, in other words, from the beginning. In fact, he had he had drafted the letter for Einstein to send to Roosevelt uh, with Edward Teller as the chauffeur out to uh, Einstein's estate, uh, urging something like a Manhattan Project, which didn't actually begin for another couple of years after that. Um, Szilard and the others were reasonably obsessed with the idea that the Germans would get this first and that it would be a weapon with which then they would protect themselves against invasion, that's for sure, uh, uh, from the sea and to a certain extent from the uh, ground with uh, with Russia. And they'd be able, in effect, to rule the world. And with this extremely uh, expansionist and aggressive and uh, ruthless um, opponent, he didn't want them to get it first. And as you know, as you all know, probably, uh, it had been Germans in the first instance who had first uh, split the atom and then realized that they had done it. Lisa Meitner found, well, that's what they've done is split the atom in their experiment and went from it. So they had a head start on the, on the physics of this. There was every reason to think they would pursue it. Uh, Hitler didn't for reasons that I just I won't go into now. I talk about them in my book, The Doomsday Machine, kind of interesting, but largely because he was expecting and counting on a short war and would not have the weapon in time to affect it. So he chose to concentrate on other things. Uh, our Manhattan Project 
the Frank report concluded in the spring of 19, the late spring of 1945, that because of the long run prospects of a nuclear era, we should not uh, use the bomb unilaterally. Uh, it, it, uh, it might be a, demo, a, a different form of the report said a demonstration, but somewhere it should not be used on people. It should not be used without the full knowledge of the Soviet Union, because otherwise there would be a deadly arms race between the two, which might happen anyway, but uh, could not be stopped if we used the bomb without having uh, made them part of the project at all, totally prepared to threaten them with it as Hiroshima and Nagasaki were in significant part intended to do. So an arms race. An arms race, as these people knew, was <laughs> that... I've already told you the story about Bradley Patterson and the uh, thousand times more than a blockbuster. They knew that the atom bomb would be the detonator, the trigger, the percussion cap for a bomb a thousand times more powerful than that. The first atom bomb, droppable atom bomb that was tested in 1954, the one that put fallout unexpectedly on uh, the Lucky Dragon which took uh, radioactive tuna back into Japan, and they had to and they had to uh, take back the all, entire tuna uh, problem. More or less created the the modern uh, since then anti nuclear movement in Japan and somewhere else. Okay, that first bomb was one thousand times Hiroshima. Hiroshima was about thirteen to fifteen kilotons. They hadn't expected go into. Uh, Fermi had been worried from start to finish on the atom bomb project, the, the, the best experimental physicist probably in the world, feared that there would be leaving something out in the effect of this. And he, he worked on this calculation until virtually days before the Trinity test, that there might be something they hadn't calculated on that would lead to uh, uh, Burning the atmosphere and the hyd- the nitrogen and the hydrogen in the water, and everything would go in a flash inside of a second. Everything gone, totally lifeless planet. He none of his calculations pointed to that uh, happening, but as a possibility, yes. Uh, and the other thing was that, as he said, this this possibility of a kind of calculation they just hadn't made at all. So he said on the way to Trinity to a fellow scientist, this won't blow up everything except by a miracle. I think the chance of a miracle is about 10%. Fermi went to this believing that there was a 10% chance that the first explosion would make the earth a lifeless rock. No microscopes, no microbes, no nothing unlike nuclear winter, which leaves most of the micro, uh, microforms, actually, more than half the, mi- the biomass of the planet remains, not with this uh, atmospheric ignition. And uh, he took a 10% chance of that. I'm not aware that anyone told, many people knew of that possibility at Los Alamos. He actually made bets on it the night before Trinity. I doubt if the president, Truman, had ever heard of this possibility. And when did that possibility take place? In 
August, uh, pardon me, of 1945, when everyone knew that no invasion was likely to be necessary, uh, would be necessary on Japan. One exception, an important exception, Marshall wasn't as sure of that. Everyone else felt sure of it. Uh, be no invasion. You didn't need the atom bomb to win. You didn't need it to shorten the war. If they were taking the risk, you know, it's true. Trinity had not blown the world up. But remember, with a very small risk like this, one test is not the answer. They did not know that it was effectively impossible to do this because of the loss of heat in the course of the reaction. Wouldn't, wouldn't go far enough. They didn't know that until after many tests, after the war, after Bikini, it was really established, no, that wasn't possible. Given that, the Front Committee, including Zillard and uh, Eugene Rabinowitz, uh, James Franks, a number of others, about nine people, said, do not, they, they questioned testing without the Soviets there, the Trinity test, which was yet to take place. And they said, if it did take place, do not, this is a slight paraphrase, do not use it against Japan. Um, uh, for fear of the, you know, the, the arms race that will set off, which they knew and said in this case is going to thermonuclear weapons. It's going to be much bigger, uh, than we have now. And we should avoid that. And here's the key part. They said on a petition that they, they, a lot of them signed, even if this would save American lives. In other words, their attitude was that the, you should consider they couldn't make that choice. But in terms of the future that lies ahead of us here on this one, even American lives uh, should not be saved by starting this arms race. And that would have been the right advice. If only they had started that in the fall at the time that uh, Bradley Patterson's class was looking at it, instead of six months later, uh, it, they might have had some influence. It might have gotten to Truman. It did not get to Truman. Their report was held up by Groves and Stimson, and it's not clear that it ever got to Truman uh, or the petitions. So that was the first thing. You should have started off with that and started, had it been a Nazi weapon that was used first, which turned out not to be possible, uh, it would have been the uh, most obvious Nazi crime. It would have been the major thing for which they were hanged. And every scientist involved would have been hanged on that one of the Nazi. And it would have come into the world as what it is a weapon of terror, a weapon of mass murder, a, a Nazi-type weapon, uh, not for us. Well, King, of course, exactly opposite, under a set, which I've only hinted at here, but a set of lies, which in, especially in 1946, starting in 45, especially that it had been essential, it was necessary, if it was an evil, it was a necessary evil, it had won the war, it was endorsed by the sainted Franklin Roosevelt, and by Truman, it was our weapon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and nothing else would have ended the war so quickly. It saved a lot of lives. I mean, all untrue, except that it had been endorsed by the presidents. And uh, who uh, who knew by that time that it was almost surely not necessary. And uh, uh, had it failed in some way, they would have gone ahead with other things. It, by the way, one little point. We know from the, the Japanese reserves had we not indicated that we would allow the emperor to escape war crimes trial and to remain as emperor, 
the army would have insisted on continuing the war even after two, three, four, and probably the ten atom bombs that were planned by the end of the year. The atom were neither necessary nor sufficient. You had to make that offer to the emperor, and it had been discussed being made months earlier, um, before Okinawa even. So uh, what that showed was not that the Americans had no reason for starting this race, but that their reasons were remarkably shallow, I would say, if not shallow, actually confronting the Russians in Europe, that's not a shallow problem. It had no effect on that, but they hoped it would. Uh, that was important. But was that possibility enough, not just to kill 300,000 people in, in a matter of time with those two weapons, we had killed 900,000 uh, Japanese civilians without the atom bombs before that. So that wasn't a moral issue. What was new for them, what was new was the future, the next hundred years. And for that, they made a deadly decision. Having done that, I would say there was no escaping that the Russians would acquire some bombs, as they did on a crash basis, and they achieved it by 1949. You could still have, at that point, said, okay, this is for no other reason than the deterrence of nuclear attack, and for that, we only need a handful of bombs, <laughs> depending on vulnerability here or the enemy's offensive capability, but let's move forward to the present. Um, how many, uh, Herb York once raised the question, how many bombs does it take to deter from nuclear attack an opponent who is rational enough to be deterred at all? Now ask yourself. And his answer was one. But one maybe you'd destroy, you know, not function. Five, ten. He said uh, maybe ten. Going at it from the other direction. Herb asked, who was the uh, head of the Livermore Laboratory established to concentrate on the thermonuclear weapon uh, under Teller, but he was the first director of it, uh, Herb York. He said, how much destructive power do we want one person to be able to launch? He said, well, let's take just off the wall here World War II. Uh, enough for him to be able to kill 60 million people in, you know, or less, of course, but not more than that in a short period of time. He said, well, that gets you up to a hundred bombs, thermonuclear bombs. Now, a hundred kiloton, not enormous by other standards. He said, maybe at the very most 200, but really a hundred will do it on cities. He was not calculating nuclear winter, which was discovered within a year of his saying this, so that one or 200 bombs uh, doesn't kill 100 million, say 200 on cities, it kills nearly everybody. There's not much in between. If you, uh, if you want to kill 100 million people, it's hard to do that except by hitting their cities and creating enough smoke to kill five or six billion. So uh, that's where we've been all this time. We got up to 37,000 nuclear weapons, mostly thermonuclear. And we're way down now to 1,500 alert on each side, uh, Russian uh, and U.S., and another 
couple thousand in reserve, about 3,000 each. 3,000 compared to 100. So what York said was, for deterrence, you need something between 1 or 10 and 100, and closer to 1 than 100. That's 49. Uh, that's about where uh, North Korea is now. The other nations all have more than that. And uh, so finally, the answer to your question is, yes, we should have cut off early on the issue. We should have had a test ban. Uh, if the testing of weapons was regarded as not uh, reliable enough, stop. At, well, atmospheric testing was uh, could be stopped. Stop testing missiles, intercontinental missiles, easy to verify all over the place. And uh, the, the missile, the, the H-bomb made the ICBM feasible because it gave it a big enough bang to compensate for its, at, at first, great inaccuracy. If it landed five miles away with a thermonuclear warhead, it could still destroy a city. It couldn't destroy a silo, but it could destroy a city. So uh, the, IC, the H-bomb gave us ICBMs on both sides. We're essentially vulnerable only to ICBMs. It would have been the highest priority for a sensible imperialist cold warrior to keep ICBMs from existing. And for that, you just had to have a mutual ban on uh, ICBMs. Was that possible with the Russians? Probably so. They kept uh, proposing things like that, and we kept pushing them aside. Uh, could we have relied on them? No, not more than in us or anybody else, no doubt. Would have been better than what we did do, which was create two doomsday machines? Yes, which is what we have. So the answer is, and finally, is there an example of somebody who's done it smarter? Yes, China. Uh, at first, we thought China couldn't afford more weapons than it had. In, in the 70s, it had about a dozen weapons capable of hitting the United States. And that lasted in the 80s and the 90s. So at first, you said, well, they can't afford more. No, they, they can't afford more. And they have chosen to do what they said was minimum deterrence, which was proposed by our Navy back in 59 and beaten back by Eisenhower and the Air Force. Uh, just rely on some submarines. Of course, the Navy wanted more submarines than you needed but for this. But nevertheless, they finally, the Navy stopped its, uh, stopped its uh, opposition when Kennedy chose to give the Air Force what it wanted and the Navy what it wanted. So... The Navy stopped arguing about that what the Air Force wanted was vulnerable and dangerous and unnecessary, as it was. But Rand didn't notice that because we worked for the Air Force. So uh, the China, China has had, it seems to me, for the last 70 years, starting in 64 when they first, or, you know, at a certain point when they first exploded the weapon, and we failed not to uh, preempt them, as was discussed in the Pentagon and in Russia, both, but neither did that. And uh, they got them. And I think without their nuclear weapons in 64, they would have experienced nuclear attack in the course of the next 10 years. With uh, Vietnam uh, relying on the support of China and Russia, and under a leader who was, I have recently learned from Vietnamese sources, as crackpot, realist, Lei Zuan, 
as uh, the worst of our leaders and who persisted in offensives that others like Ho Chi Minh and Von Nguyen Giap warned against. And given that he did that, uh, the likelihood that China would have experienced nuclear weapons on it if it hadn't had any, I think, uh, is uh, very high. So uh, it did serve a deterrent purpose for China facing both Soviet Union and uh, the U.S. And right now we're hearing a lot about, oh, we've got to build up. We've got to build up, which we are doing. Uh, because China is building up. They might double their force from 275 to 600, maybe, compared to our 3,000 and the Russian 3,000. So that is, again, a totally spurious uh, argument, given especially that what they're clearly doing in China, as uh, as in Russia, for that matter, is uh, making their force less vulnerable to a preemptive attack or to ABMs. That's clear the nature of the technology, not all of which is well advised, but uh, that's the clear purpose of it. Pressed by us having abandoned the ABM treaty and being on a $2 trillion program to reconstitute uh, the doomsday machine. So there is unwisdom to go on every side. Uh, nobody is acting wisely on this that I can point to in the world. We lost Gorbachev, uh, who really did get the picture here. And for that matter, Reagan was very uh, genuinely, it turns out, concerned and abhorrent about nuclear war, except that he had the crackpot notion instilled by Edward Tiller that he could build a shield uh, with X-ray atom bomb prompted X-ray lasers around the world. There would be a real umbrella that would keep us from being a total uh, delusion, but a quite profitable one. Could have been a lot more profitable without uh, opposition from scientists to it. But uh, still, many billions of dollars went into people's pockets pursuing that phantom. Still are, by the way. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much. Um, is Do you have to hop off? I, there's a few other questions, uh, but, you know, I, we are, we're already 10 minutes over time, so... I'm I'm sorry to have gone on. I I'm happy to go on a little longer. If anybody you can drop off or whatever, but oh, you anybody who you wants would. to stay on, I'm happy to answer some questions. Oh, that would be fantastic. You just tell us, uh, you know, when to stop. Thank you. Thank Anytime. you. Thank you yeah, so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Okay, um, Adam, uh, you had a question. Uh, yes. So based on everything you said, we got uh, super lucky that uh, we survived the Cold War, and there were no more weapons, nuclear weapons that went off in anger after Nagasaki. I was wondering if you could quantify that. So I'm just looking for a number. If you rerun the simulation starting in 1945, um, a number of times, what percentage of the time do we reach today without having had a hot nuclear war? Well, look, uh, I could give you a number of examples where I think the nuclear we the possession of nuclear weapons did support the status quo, avert or deter a change in the status quo. Above all, West Berlin. I think without nuclear weapons on our side, which would have been insane to launch against the, the Soviets after the early 50s, when they would respond by annihilating Europe, even before they had ICBMs. But the threat 
that we would or might initiate uh, nuclear war kept Khrushchev from uh, going into West Berlin, which he really wanted to do for a number of reasons, and which he committed himself to doing. So his prestige was staked on it. And uh, he was ready to take a chance, but uh, not that much of a chance. He used to say, come on, Kennedy can't start a nuclear war over Berlin. That's ridiculous, you know, because it would be crazy. Uh, as a matter of fact, Putin made an interesting statement uh, just yesterday that I just saw it. Uh, he was asked whether... Uh, the uh, British planes, now let's see how to go, a British cruiser, the British cruiser in the Black Sea might have led to, Black, uh, to World War III. Now, ask yourself what you think his answer was, but I'll tell you. He said, no, there was no possibility. Why is that? Uh, this is in an interview just the other day. And he said, even if they had sunk a Russian ship or a British ship, you know, either way, he said, uh, I'm sorry, take that back. Even if they had sunk, if we had sunk a British ship, even if we Russians, sorry, I confused that, should sink a British ship, there would be no World War Three, No World War Three, Zero. Why? Because they know they would lose the war. Now, that's a little ambiguous. Uh, lose what and lose in what sense? Uh, of course, the Black Sea is closer to Russia than to Britain, and there is the British Navy and so forth, but uh, he could say a conventional uh, fight will be won by us. That's what he, he might have said. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, let me, I'm sorry, I, sorry I, I keep misstating here. His exact words were, they can't win that war. Now, I saw an editorial which quoted that and simply rephrased it. They would lose. That's a bad rephrasing. He didn't say they would lose relatively to Russia. There's no winning a uh, two-sided nuclear exchange between the U.S. and Russia, as Reagan and Gorbachev said, and as Biden and Putin just agreed. You can't, they just made the same statement. Nuclear war, the meaning two-sided nuclear war between superpowers, cannot be won. Okay? So he said, so was he talking about a conventional attack? But he said, no, it won't lead to World War III, because if they did that in response to the crisis, they know they could not win, he said. Quite right. The world would be blown up. So they won't do it, right? Nothing to worry about. Uh, hmm. I don't take that much reassurance from Putin. Because as a matter of fact, playing these games in the Black Sea, uh, I wouldn't advise the uh, Russians to blow up a British cruiser because nothing can happen as a result. A lot can happen. Uh, and uh, actions can happen by the British and almost surely would happen, which will confront Russians with the challenge of meeting that or going beyond it, bidding over it. And that leads where? It leads to the possible near extinction of the human species. Now, what makes that, you know, there's a number of breakers in between that where you could stop. But uh, when we look at actual incidents like Taiwan, if you read that, or the Cuban Missile Crisis in which I participated, or other crises, you do see in the end the war doesn't occur. 
but you see several points at which it goes further. It keeps going. And uh, where you have to say it could occur. It could have occurred. So coming right back to your point, as somebody who, for what it's worth, I wrote my PhD thesis on subjective probability, probability and uh, axioms, decision-making under uncertainty. I won't go into all that. It's not a question of a precise probability, but even in my mind, in subjective probability, uh, betting odds or a range of betting odds, which is a, a way of expressing uncertainty, in my opinion. The chance on September 26th that a Soviet submarine, which was being bombarded with what were supposedly fake or uh, practice depth charges, but which felt to the captain of the ship like hammer blows on a barrel. He felt he was being attacked and bombarded and about to go down and said to his second in command, I'm not going down without taking them with us. Um, he was going to um, disobey his orders uh, not to go, not to use a nuclear torpedo, which we didn't know he had. We didn't know there were nuclear torpedoes on that class of submarine. Four of them had it. So he was ordered not to use that without orders from Moscow. Underneath the water, they couldn't get to Moscow. He thought he was being bombarded and go down. So for the honor of the Soviet Navy, he was going to take a cruiser carrier or at least destroyers with him. He readied the nuclear torpedo. He had all the agreement he needed from his second in command to send that off, which I think, by the way, not to go through the whole chain, we would not be here if his command, if he had pressed the button on that one and sent the torpedo. But there was a third man, Arkhipov, Vasily Arkhipov, who was the same rank as the captain of the, of the submarine, but was uh, in role higher. He was a commodore of the four submarines, and he happened to be on this submarine. So his agreement was also necessary. And he argued, no, you shouldn't do it without orders from Moscow. So we're still here. What were the odds then? I think if you'd known all of this up till that moment, it was highly likely that the world was about to blow up. Um, but from year to year, you know, very much lower. Never zero. What should it be? I would say, do we have reason to be taking a non-zero risk of destroying most life on Earth? Do we possibly have a right to do that? Well, we're in the 21st century here. We've had a century of thinking, geez, we're the U.S. or we're, we're the Third Reich or whoever. We have a right to do whatever we feel like, what it takes for but not until 70 years ago were any of these rulers able to do something that would destroy most humans on Earth. Have they developed an ethics or a control on them that would be commensurate with that responsibility? Not even slightly. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. There were lots of times when a different leader, different circumstances would have blown the world up. We've been lucky. And uh, our policies haven't, haven't been as bad as they could be. Uh, they haven't actually led pressing the button, although it, they have involved some serious threats of nuclear weapons, and I don't think all of them were bluffs. So we come back to kind of Fermi's thing. <clears throat> what chance should we give to, uh, in his case, atmospheric emission that we haven't figured something right? Um, too big. Ten uh, percent is not bad uh, over time. Maybe it's 
year by year, except for crises. And we are building toward crises very consciously. We are renewing the Cold War. We're regarding the Chinese and the Russians as people so bad in their human rights abuses, which are real, so bad that we can't talk to them. We can't. Uh, Biden was not able to have lunch with Putin. They didn't break bread in their recent summit. That would be too intimate for their, uh, perhaps on both sides, uh, for the right wing. But Putin has said he was willing to talk. Biden, it was a big step for him even to talk. This is a kind of insanity. It's like uh, believing that climate danger doesn't exist, that there's no climate problem, which only about a third to a half of our public does believe. So this, this mass insanity has been with us in the past, and it's with us right now. This is not a species to be trusted with nuclear weapons. And it never has been. If there is such a species, it's not us. And uh, uh, the uh, actual probability is, uh, I think, of getting through the next hundred years without this. My friends that I deal with, who have pretty much the same perspective, think as I do. Low very low that we survive the nuclear era. That's in addition to all your other problems of, of AI, genetic engineering, pandemics, which I just read this morning. We're not, we're no longer in a pandemic. We've got an implade during this. It'll be with us for a long time because it's gotten out of control, allegedly. That's one, one paper I read today. Now people could disagree with that. On the nuclear issue, uh, saying that no one with any sense could say that the probability is almost zero. Uh, that's like saying in New Orleans, which nobody did, there can't be a Category 3 hurricane or a 4 or a 5. Everybody knew there could be, and everybody knew in the scientists that it would overwhelm the levees, and it would, it would go over them, and it would crack them. And there was study after study, including in the year before Katrina, that you had to plug those leaks and you had to raise the levees, but the money wasn't there. It hadn't happened yet. And everybody knew, well, that's what a category, first they thought it was a category five, uh, but then they said a category three would have been just as bad. And they were talking about as something would happen once every several hundred years. That was wrong. Bad calculation. Uh, the way things are moving. So in short, I say the probability is too great. It's small year by year, but in crises with armed conflict of any kind with China or Russia, no matter how justified that armed conflict seems to be in Ukraine or Taiwan or somewhere else, we're not threatening it for Xinjiang. That's a human rights violation going on that we do understand our military cannot solve. Or Hong Kong. We can't protect Hong Kong. Can we protect Taiwan with safely enough? Uh, I think we should be looking very closely at alternatives to conflict over Taiwan, which in which try to keep the democracy of Taiwan that it has achieved in the last 20 years, in contrast to the mainland. Yes, they have every right to be willing to give their lives to protect that. That is a cause worth protecting actually. By our initiating nuclear war? No. How about by threatening it? 
let me predict, Biden will do that. He will imply that we're already committed to the defense of Taiwan, and he will refuse to forego the threat of initiating nuclear war first use. If I'm wrong, I'll be the happiest person you can imagine. He won't do it because he will be accused by the right wing here, which we now know is pretty large, of having invited a communist attack on Taiwan. Well, that's not a totally foolish supposition under current circumstances. And so he will continue the threat and the risk. And it's a real risk. And I I come back to Putin. (laughs) The war will not take place because people know better. He didn't say uh, uh, they uh, would lose it. They won't win it, meaning the world will go up. That's why they won't, that's why it won't happen. Sorry about that, Vladimir. That's a dumb statement. He's the head of a state. He's the head of a nuclear weapons state. Should he be telling the world that war is impossible because deterrence is absolutely certain? That's idiotic. Does that mean that he's stupid? No, he's not stupid. This whole system was constructed by very smart people, some of them geniuses. Literally geniuses. And uh, uh, one genius, everybody agreed was a genius, was the guy who inspired my first uh, graduate work in decision theory, von Neumann. My honors thesis uh, as, at Harvard was written on decision-making on rational, rational, pardon me, let me lower my voice here, rational decision-making under uncertainty, the contributions of von Neumann and Morgenstern. Very good. So von Neumann as a consultant who first proposed uh, mating the ICBM and the, I mean, he was among those, he was in charge of a committee that proposed mating the ICBM with the H-bomb, a really great idea for Americans, said more than once, you say that we should, uh, if you say, if, if, I'm sorry, if you say we should strike, this is a paraphrase, the Russians first. In a month, I say, why not tomorrow? And if you say tomorrow, I say, why not today? Now that was for Neumann. As a calculator, as a mathematician, no one that I know of has ever been claimed to be smarter than Neumann. They have different kinds of intelligence, but he's in the Einstein, Fermi, Feynman class. And that was stupid to the point, but dangerously stupid, in favor of preemptive war. Uh, you can look it up and find that quote. I'm sure I didn't have it exactly on the web. Of course, you should go first rather than second. Uh, pardon me. That's, you know, in, in Dr. Strangelove, that would be quite in character. And that's why I say Strangelove was a documentary. There were people like von Neumann, strictly speaking, von Braun was the, the Nazi in the film, Kissinger, of course, Edward Teller, all. Let me give you a secret. Kissinger is no genius. But Teller is probably a, a genius as far as I'm concerned. Von Neumann, sure, why not? Yes, yes, not Kissinger. Uh, some of these guys, you know, there are smart fools like... Uh, uh, Tom Friedman, and then there are um, 
fool's fools like Douglas Fife or the various people who uh, who is described as one of the architects of the Iraq War and the general in charge called him the dumbest fucking person on the face of the earth. And he was providing intelligence to uh, George W. Bush to encourage him to go into. So you have, but, but mostly, mostly you don't get uh, Douglas Fife's up there. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, example of a brilliant fool. Let's go into Iraq and um, uh, democracy will spread throughout the Mideast. Is that smart? But Paul Wolfowitz is very smart by all standards, meaning like you, you're all very smart, I suspect, on this film. It is no protection to the world that you will not participate in disastrous uh, choices and risk-taking. That applies to me. It applies to everybody on this screen. And uh, uh, I don't even conclude that, as, as Albert Speer once said, uh, a number three man who, was pr uh, who raised production in Germany under the bombing. And in, in, uh, he said, when he was asked, how could such a smart person as you be a Nazi you know, under, under Hitler? And he said, intelligence is no correlation, has no correlation with decency. Now, these people actually are all decent people by their standards, by their lights. Somebody once said so-and-so is an honorable man by his lights, but his lights were dim. Well, these people were, had their own morality, but it involved taking risks with the future of humanity that they should not have been taking. Thank you. Um, I think in AI, that is called the orthogonality thesis, uh, that intelligence and alignment isn't always correlated. We have one more question, perhaps from Peter Norvig, in case uh, you have time for one more. I can stay longer, yeah. so it's up to you. Um, more uh, comment I than... Could I, use some, I could use some water if you hold on just a minute. I wish I could bring you some water, <laughs> but <laughs> as a moderator, I'm not able to do this on Zoom. <laughs> um, but Peter, I think you're there. Yeah, so, so the comment was, uh, uh, I heard uh, George Dyson say that uh, Freeman Dyson uh, agreed Wait, with... I'm, I'm sorry, if you were asking a question, I couldn't hear it because I didn't have my uh, headphones on. Headphones. Uh, I heard George Dyson say that uh, it was Freeman Dyson's opinion that uh, he said it would have been better if the Nazis had uh, got the bomb first. Because he said, you know, it would have bombed London once, we'd lose 100,000 civilians, but then uh, the weapons would have been banned forever. So that, that Well, was I think that's uh, banned forever, who knows, but yes, it would have been uh, less dangerous for the world for the Nazis to do that. I'll give you a reason why they didn't, by the way. But Dyson is a very interesting example. I met him a couple of times. He was very flattering to me because of the Pentagon Papers. He was at Princeton. And uh, he was he was against the Vietnam War. And Dyson is a guy who I quote quite a, quite a bit in my doomsday machine, Confessions, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Uh, he, it, it, very interesting. If you see that book, which I recommend, look up Dyson in the... Uh, in the index, and you'll see some interesting judgments by him. But he and he wrote a very candid memoir. Um, 
uh, in the form, actually, of a series of articles in The New Yorker that he finally brought together in a series, several books. It's one of the best written memoirs you'll ever find, and one of the most self-reflective uh, memoirs. But the story he tells is summed up, uh, summed up at one of the ending of a chapter at the end of World War II, he, uh, World War One. Wait, wait, let me get ready. World War Two. Yeah, sorry, British. Um, that uh, he was very glad to be out of the war. He'd been working for the British, the RAF, the uh, Bomber Command, actually uh, on operational aspects of it. <clears throat> He's very glad it was over because he had started the war as a Gandhian pacifist before the war. And he said, then I retreated from that, and uh, which in which I would follow him on that point in World War II. He said, never kill civilians. Then I got into that. And he goes from one thing to another. He said, by the end of the war, you know, he had been for everything. Uh, it didn't look so good. So he was disgusted by it. But it turned out later, he made a lot of other judgments like that. He was a big fan of the neutron bomb of which I was not a fan, uh, a number of things. And he just made judgment after judgment. Dyson is, is an interesting case. If you actually look at his values and what he did, um, he was always getting himself for intellectual curiosity or following orders or doing whatever into situations that involved violating his previous values. Interesting. Was he alone in that? No, he was an exemplar of an entire official class, or for that matter, scientific class, with some good exceptions, like, for example, Zillard. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, just, some of you may know Richard Garwin, who I met. he actually supported a project I was doing. But Garwin is an interesting case, because again, a genius by all accounts. Uh, and uh, one of the very smartest guys dealing with the original atom bomb H-bomb uh, designs, and and later, and very quite anti-nuclear, except that uh, as in child in in John Hersey's book, John Hersey of Hiroshima, book the child buyer, he just couldn't resist answering a problem that the Air Force or the labs set him, no matter how dangerous it might be, and. Uh, in fact, this is good for all of you. I'll tell you a joke applied to Richard Garwin. If he, some of you know him, I don't know him well. I just know his career. Uh, he's like a lot of other scientists that I did know well. Uh, Garwin is accused during the revolution, as might well have happened, of being a dissident. And so he's to be guillotined. And he's in a line of people being guillotined. And first, a bishop puts his head on the block, the the uh, the axe comes down. Uh, first, they ask the bishop, you can be face up or face down. He says face down. So the axe comes down halfway and stops. And they say, well, gee, you've been put through this. You can go. You're acquitted. Same thing happens to another guy who comes there face down, uh -huh. stops, they go. Garwin's turn. He says, face up. He looks up, and just before they pull the rope, he says, wait a minute, I think I see your problem. And uh, that's, in a way, the, the contributions that scientists have made uh, so long. Uh, the, uh, 
Yeah, okay. Anyway, go on. I had something in mind, but having a senior moment here at 90, these do happen. Uh, I forget what I was about to say. This is a terrifying pointer. Um, I think that we have reached the end of our questions. Um, I would love us to perhaps conclude with, uh, given you know the really terrifying, um, almost humorously terrifying, absurd account that you've just yeah. conveyed us, um, what can the next generation do better? Um, looking forward into a world in which not only nukes are still a threat hiding in plain sight, but we also have the proliferation of a bunch of other technologies. What can we do better? Okay. Um, very, very crucial question. Let me, let me address that. Um, okay. I remember what I was about to say, and it's related to this, so I will, I will go ahead and say it. And that was why the Nazis did not pursue a Manhattan Project. Well, they made a miscalculation, Heisenberg, as to how large the critical mass had to be. But as others said after the war, look, if we really wanted to make this bomb for Hitler, um, which, and they were Nazis, they were supporting Hitler, but they did have uneasy feelings about Hitler having that bomb. And as some of them said uh, uh, to Heisenberg and others, if you really wanted to do this, uh, we would have gotten past that miscalculation we would, would have discovered and so forth. Putting that aside... Uh, Speer is asked, literally, this is the case in Speer's memoirs, Speer is asked in 42, uh, just at the very time that the Manhattan Project is getting organized, it didn't really get started till the fall of 42, but they joined together in June of 42, I think it was May or June, at UC Berkeley, to the, the theorists, to start discussing the theory of it. So June was just at the time then that you could say, the theorizing really started. And in Germany, uh, Speer talks to all the uh, physicists that he can. He's not a physicist himself, architect and engineer. And he reports to Hitler in the French that they don't think they could do it within less than four years. And this is 42. So Hitler was counting on the war being over one way or another before that. So that was a factor against it. But the other one was, and Speer says this in his memoir, I told him about the possibility of atmospheric ignition, which, as I've told you, was not ruled out as a possibility until about uh, 46, sometime in 46, after the war. So Hitler is told about this, and uh, that there's a possibility that this thing will ignite the nitrogen in the air and the hydrogen in the ocean. He said, Hitler was not in, uh, happy about the thought that he might ring down the curtain on mankind. Hitler. And by the way, the first reaction of uh, Compton when he heard about this was, we must stop on this. We've got to stop uh, everything. I'm telling you this because it, it's so relevant, you know, to the kind of thing you face in these other existential issues. So Compton says, we've got to stop. We've got to discuss this with Oppenheimer when they realized what Teller's calculations, which included an arithmetic error, because like me, Teller made arithmetic errors on the, on the blackboard. That's the, the only thing I share with Edward Teller. And um, so aside from that, though, they still had the possibility. So to get to Oppenheimer, he was in a um, 
in a, in a uh, retreat somewhere fishing, uh, Compton goes across the country uh, by, by rail because with the secrets of this bomb and then they weren't supposed to fly. He gets Oppenheimer and discusses it with him. And Compton's attitude is, if there is any possibility of atmospheric ignition, we cannot continue. So they worked at it and they discovered uh, that the uh, it wasn't as possible as Teller's arithmetic had suggested, but still seemed possible. Beta, who was the most knowledgeable of the theoretical physicists at that time, and his uh, Nobel Prize, which actually related to his uh, thermonuclear uh, studies of the sun, uh, he says, it's impossible. Beta says it's impossible. Well, that's the best authority you could have, except that no one agreed with him. Uh, they looked at me, looked at the calculations and said, very unlikely, but it's not impossible. And as I say, Fermi in the end says 10%, who looks somewhat wiser to me. Beta was right, but I think Fermi made a good estimate there. And so throughout the war, they kept rediscovering, young scientists kept rediscovering this and saying, hey, this thing may blow up all life on Earth. See, no, we've covered that. We've gone into that because they had concluded, uh, uh, Compton says, we can't go ahead unless the likelihood is less than three in a million. So, see, okay, it's less than three in a million. So they go ahead. Given the risk of Germany at that point in 42, that seems, I have to say, reasonable to me, that not to want the Germans to have a monopoly. Although my leader friend Joe Rotblatt said, you know, you couldn't have deterred Hitler. It's a, it gets more complicated. Anyway, um, they go ahead, but now we get, and we're going to come back to what I was saying earlier, now we get to May. The Germans have surrendered. We knew the Japanese did not have a bomb. What do you do now? Do you risk atmospheric ignition? Fermi says maybe 10%. Or what about 1%? Fermi gave odds the night before and took bets as to whether all of uh, Nevada would be incinerated or the whole world. He said, I can make book on two, two counts here. Reasonable odds. We don't know the exact odds, but we do know now that he said this 10%. I don't think he was giving odds at three in a million. That's not a, a bet people are very interested in. So, uh, okay. So, of course, they should not have done that at that time. Would Truman really have accepted uh, Fermi's estimate, you know, of 10% or 1%? Shouldn't have. But Hitler said, no, he didn't want it. And then Hitler said to Speer, you scientists... Someday you're going to find out a way to burn up the world. But that will not be for my lifetime, he says. He died just before Trinity. And uh, Trinity could have done it. That uh, Then uh, he wouldn't have time to say, well, I'm glad I didn't do it. You know, Nobody would have time to say anything. So there we are. At least that's what I was going to say. Now, what should people do? Well, they should be aware, and I'll talk just to this group. And by the way, a recording of this group will sound me sounding more dogmatic, uh, passionate, emotional, and insulting uh, 
than I have ever permitted myself to be. I can't even remember it in 70 years. How could that be? Well, this is my last interview of a month where I've done about two or three a day. In fact, I have one more today. So this is the next to last interview for this uh, anniversary of the Pentagon Papers and my 90th birthday and uh, and the Taiwan revelations of last month. So I kind of let myself go here. Uh, that's it. Uh, so just understand that. That's not the way I talk all the time. But right now, we should begin to recognize as a method of, as the Pentagon Papers could have revealed to people, but didn't quite. Smart guys can pursue insane policy, extremely murderously. They don't care as much about other people as you imagine human leaders would. But you're wrong. Human leaders don't. And we can show that with enormous amount of data over the last 2,000 years. So the notion that, uh, uh, Putin's notion that if he really believes this, there can't be any war. He said the war impossible because no sane person is what he's saying. That's a paraphrase. Would start it. Sorry. They're sane by other standards and wrong. Britain should not be fooling around in the Black Sea like this. Uh, the Russians should not be thinking. And if, if he really thinks he can sink a, a carrier, I mean, a, a cruiser with no risk, get him out of there. But he wouldn't be unusual. That's the kind of thinking that our, our decision making was rife with. So should you trust these people to make decisions in secret? No. Uh, should you be? Now, here's a big one for you. Should you be prepared to say no to a president? Yes, absolutely. To If you're in office, you will have taken an oath of office. And it will not have been an oath to a president or to a Fuhrer or to a secretary general or anybody. The oath you'll take in office in this country, and this may go in other countries I'm, I'm hearing, happens to be to defend and support, support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, it so happens that in some respects, our Constitution is really worth defending uh, to the death. Everybody has a Constitution, and uh, nowadays, in the last hundred years, and uh, a lot of them are ignored, just totally ignored. Soviet Russia had a Constitution. For all I know, North Korea has a constitution. It may not, but most countries do. They aren't necessarily worth much. The First Amendment has had its effects over here to a considerable extent. We don't have an official Secrets Act, as Britain does, for that reason. Now, does that mean, by the way, that Britain is for that reason not a democracy, and we are? No, we can't conclude that however badly they've done on COVID, even worse than we have, uh, they're, uh, they're a democracy to a large extent. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't make horrible errors uh, or, or that we can. But we have a First Amendment. They don't. They have an official Secrets Act. We don't. Except that, starting with me, there was one earlier case that got dropped 
But starting with me through a prosecution, the Espionage Act has been used as if it were an official secrets act. And that was so blatantly unconstitutional that um, uh, after my provocation, there was only two other cases that were brought in that century. But under, and one of them was then dropped by Obama. But Obama brought about nine such cases and Trump eight in his first term. And they include a, a journalist, Julian Assange, for the first time. If Julian is indicted and, and, and uh, prosecuted, he will almost surely be convicted at the lower level for nothing that has not been done by New York Times reporters, including Charlie Savage, a terrific reporter who did a great job on what I gave him a month ago of putting out top secrets. Could Charlie be accused of the same uh, crimes as Julian Assange? Absolutely, if they are crimes constitutionally. In this country, they aren't, but the Supreme Court has never addressed that. So one thing then is to be where we do, the Espionage Act should not be used as an official secrets act. Julian Assange should be freed. We should, Biden should stop appealing the order of a British judge that he should not be extradited, that he should be freed. But Trump appealed that and Biden has renewed the appeal to convict him. If that's the case, he will not be the last journalist. He'll be the first of a flood of journalists to be. And, and the First Amendment will be gone as far. Uh, did the First Amendment protect us from the atom bomb or the uh, nuclear arms race or Vietnam or Iraq? No, it didn't. Everybody kept their mouth shut. They did not go to the newspapers and tell them what was in store. Yes, Rabinowitz of the Front Report said, while I was eluding the FBI in the, for 13 days in 1971, he wrote the New York Times and said, Rabinowitz now, who was the rapporteur of the Front Report, and he said, in the spring of 1945, I had sleepless nights pondering whether I should not tell the American public of the atom bomb. This was after the German surrender now, of the atom bomb. He said, he said in another piece, I have no illusions. They might have gone ahead with it anyway, but at least they would have done so knowingly. They would have shared responsibility for doing this. But he didn't. And he said, this is in response to the alleged case of Daniel Ellsberg, who they're looking for at this moment. I'm telling you that uh, I believe that if I had released that information in 45, I would have been right to do so. And he's right. He would have been right to do so. And he was wrong not to do so. And Szilard, who felt just as strongly, later said, wrote a piece, a fiction piece, my trial as a war criminal. The Russians have won the war in his piece. He's being tried. And he says, but I did a petition uh, against dropping it. And the Russian prosecutor points out, you did it through channels, knowing it would be blocked. And Zillard wrote this fictional piece. He said, true, I recognized. You know, I was guilty. And it's true. The FBI tailed um, Zillard because they knew from what he was writing that he was against using the bomb. So they were tailing him in case he should leak. And he should have leaked, but he didn't. And Rabinowitz, who wasn't being tailored, tailed, 
didn't either, and he regretted it later. So all of you then face will, will at some point face this point. Shall I keep the promise I've made not to tell what I've learned in this process to anyone under any circumstances that my bosses have not authorized to get? That promise should never be made absolutely. I was just thinking this morning, we don't have in the Bill of Rights, or I'm sorry, in the Declaration, we do have in the Bill of Rights, in the Declaration of Independence, we don't have an inalienable right to tell the truth, do we? Uh, to speak out. It could hardly be regarded as inalienable. We alienate it in every group we join. From the PTA to a book club, we don't air dirty laundry outside this group, right? Right. Uh, I sign a non-disclosure agreement. I will not reveal it. That's called alienating a right to tell the truth. Non-alienation means you can't sell it. It can't be taken away from you. You can't voluntarily give it away. And uh, how about uh, an inalienable right to lie? Well, officials think they have that, you know. But they have, uh, you know, they've given away their right to tell the truth. Uh, and they believe they have a right to lie to Congress or to a court to keep secrets because they have promised to. Promise to whom? Promise as a condition of their job. And they could lose their job. They could lose their clearance. They could lose their access. That has kept people's mouths shut almost entirely. The people who have actually risked their job to try to end the Vietnam War. I said yesterday in a, uh, another panel I was in, my friend Mort Halpern joined my defense team. He couldn't get hired. And he had been in line to be uh, a national security assistant. That was the, He'd been deputy to Kissinger. That was the logical job for him. He couldn't get hired under Carter because he worked on my defense team. And he was challenged under Clinton and had to take jobs that did not require affirmation. He did sacrifice in his career for that. And I can't think of anyone else who did, who had a clearance. Anybody who worked for the government, who lifted a finger beyond the kind of protests that did not risk their job. And there were a lot of that. A lot of people said, even very privately, this is catastrophic. Catastrophic. Clark Clifford, Hubert Humphrey. Gee, if something's catastrophic, uh, should you take part in it? Well, they did, because the president decided otherwise. So uh, they went ahead and supported the war. After that, having said that it would be catastrophic, politically as well as humanly, there's no other exceptions. To, there's no exceptions to that. McNamara, etc. McNamara could have ended the war at almost any time by telling what he had told the president and what he had uh, what he had in his safe. He had in his safe uh, everything I had and more. Not one line of it was shown to have uh, hurt national security to be released. But he didn't release any of it. Never did. So anyway, that's that's what we can try to change. It's a human characteristic to keep your promises, even when people's lives depend on your breaking that promise. Uh, I am saying, I can put it colorfully, when you make a promise to keep secrets, a promise to keep secrets, especially 
uh, a promise to somebody who has life and death matters in their hands, and that's not just politicians, that's engineers and scientists and people who inspect buildings, as we've just seen in Miami. And uh, uh, how much did we... We now learn that there are a lot of reports that that building that collapsed was unsafe. But nobody put them out. Nobody made a, a public thing. Even the people who recommended that you must do it did not take the step of bringing people's attention to it or challenging it. The building just fell down. Well, that was the kind of thing my father, you know, was a structural engineer. Uh, he, he brought me up on tales of the Tacoma Bridge. Some of you will remember that. And uh, which a certain wind resonance in the uh, there made it flap like a blanket being, uh, being shaken. And the cars tossed off it and so forth. Uh, see, my father used to say, the Gothic cathedrals you see over there are the ones that didn't fall down. And uh, that's how engineers learn. But uh, imperialists don't learn that way because they don't, they don't suffer from it. The emperors, like the ones we elect uh, to manage an empire, may lose their job, but for mostly other reasons. Other reasons, not for catastrophic acts of aggression. So I, I have a question about that, because um, uh, the phenomena you're describing is clearly there. I've seen it my whole life, and it's mysterious to me uh, in the following sense. Uh, what you started with, that it, that it never even occurred to you not to release the Pentagon Papers because you were willing to risk your life in war. Well, as, as we all know, there are many people willing to risk their life in war. Uh, I've been, I was part of the cypherpunks movement during the export. Could you speak a little louder? I'm having trouble oh. hearing you, Mark. Yes. Um, is this better? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, as you started with, uh, it never occurred to you not to release the Pentagon Papers because you had already come to the decision of being willing to risk your life in war, being willing to risk your life for things that you care about. Many people do come to those decisions of being willing to risk their life in certain causes. Uh, I was one of the cypherpunks, and I both saw and participated during the era of export controls, of people taking it on themselves to risk their lives and careers to get cryptography out into the world. Um, the, so, so we do see a certain level of, of, of this kind of courage uh, in individual actions uh, in some parts of the world. And at the same time, we see other parts of the world, like the national security apparatus, able to keep secrets to an astonishing extent, um, you know, that out of millions of people, you have, you know, one or two that has enough conscience to decide to risk things in order to get things uh, out there in public. Um, I don't understand how both of those can be true, how, how there can be so little courage of the people holding the, the important secrets within the, the national security state. Okay, very good. Uh, I've, I've, I've puzzled with that for 50 years, a little more than 50 years myself, and don't have a strong answer to it. But as a phenomenon, I have come to see the contours of it a bit more. 
of all people, Bismarck, uh, famously, if you follow Bismarck, <laughs> had a quotation, physical courage is commonplace, on the battlefield is commonplace among our people. He was speaking of Prussia. He said, but civil courage, he used it, which is civil courage, or often translated as moral courage, is very rare, even among people who are otherwise very decent and responsible. And the and, and when you say this, the circumstances matter, yes, very sharply in a certain sense. In wartime, both sides uh, fight with ground troops and fire pilots and uh, uh, all their risk-taking uh, troops. Having trained them without much trouble as teenage boys or a little older, to take enormous physical risks for their team, for their country, for a cause, but really uppermost in their mind, they're trained as for the other people that are risking their lives for me and I'll risk my life for them. And when you say it's commonplace, when one says it's commonplace, I saw that on the field as a former peacetime Marine company commander. I, I knew enough about uh, walking in combat without having been in it initially. Uh, to f go with troops, to walk with troops a lot in Vietnam. And I saw that kind of courage everywhere, on both sides, actually, is the, the typical thing. So, uh, yes, you can train people to be courageous that way, and without, it isn't too hard, even, to train them that way. And all armies know how to do it. Um, but civil courage for civilians, and now you're talking about when it comes to well, there. When it comes to risk, what I keep saying over and over, risking one's job, one's advancement, one's promotion, one's status, one's clearance, one's access. Very rare to find anybody who takes any risk at all. Now, some of the people who get ahead fastest are people who do take some risks of that, of angering their boss by persisting in something the boss doesn't like or even going around them, bypassing them. Very dangerous. That can lose your career fast. But it can also, if it works, and you're, you're vindicated, in your point of view, is a fast route. A guy like MacArthur uh, got high by being fairly insubordinate much of his life. And uh, uh, I, was, uh, I was not insubordinate as a Marine, but, uh, but I, I definitely had it in mind that if I got a bad order, I wasn't just going to salute. That's not, people think that's the way Maroons are trained, like robots. That's not, that's not the case. Uh, you're, you're, as an infantry officer, you are supposed to have a mind and take in what's actually happening in front of you and so forth, and not simply obey uh, unquestioningly or by rote. And it was that very experience that led me, when I was looking at nuclear command and control, to say, when my good conscientious officers who've been told not to launch weapons until the president demands it, when might they disobey that? I did that because I'd been a Marine. I would, uh, if I got an absolutely stupid order, I wasn't going to obey it just automatically. I was in situations like that, actually. So uh, I said, where are these guys? And I discovered I could easily generate, you can see the details in my book, 
circumstances where, uh, as the kind of thing in Dr. Strangelove, somebody thinks the right thing to do is to disobey this order. As a matter of fact, I'll, since I've told you so much already about that submarine by Savitsky in 1962, when the submarines who did surface under our supposed practice grenades, and they surfaced under American destroyers, including Savitsky, who did not use his torpedo, he was reprimanded when he got back for not using it. He shouldn't have gone to the bottom without using every weapon he had, and instead of surfacing. Although he did have an order, you shouldn't use that weapon, uh, he assumed that they would want him to use it back there. And being a very conscientious officer, for the honor of the Navy, they were all told, the four sub-commanders, when they went back, they had dishonored the Soviet Navy by obeying that order and, and coming up in front of American warships. And revealing themselves. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I knew as a Marine. That's how I knew it, uh, that, that that kind of thing could be done. So, we could try to learn a, a different ethic. It's uh, Mark, I would disagree with you on one thing. The people who kept their promise of secrecy in all these matters, as in Iraq, nearly everyone active duty saw that as a disastrous intervention military man. I've never heard of a single general, a brigadier rank or higher, who agreed with that invasion. Uh, that's an amazing statement, but that's, I believe, the truth. There were some retired people, like Cake, I said, yeah, <coughs> Cake walk, let's do it. Um, and uh, But the military officers, no, they didn't want to do it, but they didn't talk. They didn't say that. They kept their promise of silence. Now, how about the ones who do then, the Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, or me? I think it's misleading to think, imply that we had more conscience, or we had a conscience and the others didn't. I believe the others had as much conscience and as much consulting as me or Ed or anybody else. But their conscience told them different things. Why, in my case, was it different? Well, I'd had, I'd had the experience of meeting draft resistors who'd said, no, it's possible to say no. You don't have to go, but the result is prison. All right, prison, but better than my killing in an unjust war or being killed. Uh, so they chose that. And that revealed to me, wait a minute, there is a choice. These other people, it wasn't that they had no conscience. It was that their conscience didn't even call on them to imagine doing something for which they would be reproved by their team and their bosses as having betrayed the team, being a traitor, being ostracized. Make it as, here, I'll make it very large what I've learned at 90. Humans will do almost, will consider and do almost anything to avoid being ostracized by a group that they value being part of. And of course, you're part of many groups, some in competition with each other, and they overlap and they're different and so forth. But for nearly everyone in the world, 7.8 billion people, most of them are outside any group you're in part of. And my sad realization of human leaders is that they're like other people. They don't care at all for the majority of humanity that is not us in the widest sense. 
they don't have a species sense any more than other humans do. We, with rare exceptions. There are the rare exceptions. They're very rare, really rare. Less than three in a million. Well, I'll tell you that, to, to pick a number off the wall. Uh, who actually, and that's a large number altogether, but uh, if you have 7.8 billion people, but most of them, citizens, leaders, subordinates, go along with almost any act of cruelty or inhuman, uh, what is called inhumanity, but it's very human, actually, inhumane action against people who are them, other, us, not us. That's, that's the way it is. Now, can we get, can we somehow transcend that, change human nature? It's not impossible. That's not impossible. Just as Admiral Charles Richard, the commander of our strategic command in charge of all the nuclear weapons, almost all, or maybe somebody took strategic command, says this year under Biden, um, War with Russia, we have to be prepared to fight war with Russia or China or both. And is that a pure hypothetical possibility? He said, no, I used to think nuclear war was impossible, but it is not impossible. Now, how would it start? He's almost surely in most situations talking about the U.S. starting that because we have a sphere of influence that goes right up to Russia and right up to China, unlike them. So thousands of miles from us, and we're the ones who are likely to be outnumbered in some place like Taiwan or uh, South Korea, even something like that. Not necessarily, but possibly. So the thought of fighting Russia and China is the U.S. starting nuclear war. That's insane. That should be a category in our decision theory. Not just wrong, not just ignorant, but insane. But who decides that? Well, nobody decides it. Nobody is the last person. The, uh, not me, not anybody. Uh, but you can look at that and say, Admiral Richard, nuclear war with China and Russia? You're talking about near extinction of the human species, aren't you? Or do you happen to be ignorant of that? You may not know about nuclear winter. Is that possible? I'm sorry to say, yes, it's it's possible. Uh, it seems amazing, but I have to say it's possible. Then get less ignorant. Uh, that's been, uh, we've known that since 1983. That's almost 40 years ago. So uh, get on the ball on that one. But how about forget nuclear winter? I don't believe nuclear winter, like uh, the people who don't believe climate change. Fine. Just believe the destruction of the northern hemisphere by blast, heat, radiation, immediate prompt radiation, and fallout. Without the smoke that goes around the globe, the southern hemisphere survives. There's almost no targets down there. That's what, uh, that's what Rumsfeld, who just died the other day, said why he didn't want to bomb Afghanistan. He wanted to bomb Iraq after 9-11. Why? There's no good targets in Afghanistan. And the counterterrorism chief, Richard Clark, says, but Afghanistan had nothing to do with this. Uh, this was al-Qaeda. And he says, and that's when he said, but there are no good targets in Afghanistan. And 
you know, Iraq is, is Saddam Hussein is a problem here. Well, there are no good targets in, in South America. So if it weren't for the smoke, South America would survive. Half the planet, glass half full. With smoke, which does happen, uh, they don't survive. Well, that's the way it is. But uh, have people been willing to contemplate before they discovered nuclear winter, killing nearly everyone in the northern hemisphere? Yes. All of our presidents, all of our, not likely, they say, I won't do it. Some of them said, I don't think Nixon said that. I don't think Eisenhower said that. But actually, some of them may say, I won't do it under any circumstances. Could that be relied on? No. Kennedy was one of those people, I believe. In Berlin, Khrushchev could have triggered nuclear war, but he didn't. So we have West Berlin and two doomsday machines. Okay. Thank you. I think this is, to close it out, maybe Yosha had a question that really relates to what you just said. Yosha, if you would like to unmute yourself. Did you, were you asking for questions? I couldn't quite hear that. Uh, yes, Yosha. Yosha has a question? Yeah. I try. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Nobody I, uh, disagrees? Yes. Nobody disagrees with anything I've said? Could that be? Well, well there let's see. Yosha probably has... minor disagreements, but I don't really disagree with what you said. So I, I was asking a, a, a slightly deeper question. Okay. I did I'm not uh, hearing this, but maybe you can translate. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, if I speak more slowly and more loudly, does it work better? Help, helps, yes, thank you. Okay. Who is so, this, I'm uh, sorry? Who is uh, this? Joshua Bach. I'm a cognitive scientist who is currently a foresight fellow. I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the name. Who is it? Who is it? My name is Joshua Bach. It's, it's hard to understand. It's oh, yes, I name. see it, but not the picture. Yes, okay, go yes. ahead. Um, so, um, I... I must, uh, I, my disagreements, but let's not go into the disagreements. I was wondering uh, who in the present generation is able to keep up political thinking at that level. I found that uh, when I was at Harvard that uh, the present generation is not trained in this kind of um, global non-naive thinking. Most of the thinking that I encountered was very ideological and short-sighted. This is, uh, so I met many people in your generation that still have this a global modernist perspective and is interacting with the ground truth. And I found that the younger generations either uh, don't really believe in the non-negotiability of political facts, they think that there are social agreements, or uh, they have a relatively naive and short-sighted perspective that is not really aware of the intricacies of the political systems that we are in. Do you have the impression that there is a new generation of political thinkers that is able to follow up on uh, U.S. politics and uh, repair the current system and follow on? Or uh, is my perception correct that we are currently uh, maneuvering ourselves into a political vacuum? Look, uh, I, do have, I do have the impression that young people look better in polls and in the attitudes they express than the older generations on many counts, on many different counts, one can point to that. On the other hand, that's often been true in the past. And they didn't always act on that as they got older, it seems like. 
And they didn't act enough. And, and that's not a criticism because what would be enough? What could they do? They're not in positions of power generally. Uh, they demonstrate. They uh, may write letters. They might write things. But the young people are, are not running the country generally. So how much do we see of their, you know, what is the effect of their attitudes? Can we put hope in the fact that um, that they will be running things later? Yes and no. As I just said, um, uh, I have a strong feeling that Greta Thunberg will be uh, taking the view she's taking on climate when she's older. I have a lot of trust in her. She's a hero of mine. But that's uh, that's unusual. And uh, to keep this activism going, as you, you get uh, you get obligations, family, um, children, children's education, um, the. Um, I read a book by B.H. Littlehart at a time when I was interested in military strategy. He was a famous military historian and strategist. And he interviewed the German generals after World War II. And uh, he reported that a lot of them thought that the attack into, first they were, they were very, they thought the attacks, all of Hitler's attacks were very reckless, but he kept succeeding and then uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Rhineland, and so forth. So they they didn't feel with the same authority they could object as before. Still, when it came to Russia, they thought, that is impossible. Well, was it or wasn't it? And they didn't succeed. Uh, but um, uh, they did think, however, they, they thought it was catastrophic. The way that, the way that uh, uh, Clifford thought, Clark Clifford, or Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, thought about the Iran, uh, the Vietnam bombing. Disastrous. But they didn't quit because they had children to go to college. And, and they themselves were often not of the, uh, by the Hitler time, of the Junker class. The landed estates had a lot of lifetime education. They were middle class people who had to earn a salary and uh, wanted their children to go to college and not be ostracized. And so forth. So they invaded Russia. Uh, the uh, uh, so are the the young people. They didn't save Germany, and they didn't. They didn't. They, they haven't exactly saved anywhere. Although what they did do in the sixties was very remarkable. The uh, the five thousand I mentioned who went to prison uh, to make the strongest possible statement that they could. They were doing. Everything they could do, everything they could think of doing, and they put in my head things that I hadn't thought of doing. But that was just not true. Of uh, There are many people inside. I've just been reading the diary of my former boss, John McNaughton. Extremely interesting. I knew he was against the war when I worked for him in 64, 65, when you were escalating. And uh, now it turns out from reading his diary that most people he was working with agreed with him. And not one of them did more than complain to each other about what was happening and uh, tell their friends at Harvard, this is just terrible, but don't tell anybody I said so, you know, and so forth. McNamara at one point says to McNaughton in 66, I want so badly to give the troops the order to go home that I can barely stand it. But as my wife pointed out when I said that to her, but he did stand it. 
as uh, he, he didn't resign. He finally got fired when he finally told the truth to the president of what he thought we should do. The president fired him, which is why he hadn't said it earlier. But uh, could they have taken some chances? Can we demand of our officials? Is it beyond human capability for them to take some chances of their career and even of their children's communication? And not to make a virtue out of this, but I will say I did face the question of my children's education. My former wife said to me, you can't do this. I said, you're, you're not going to get uh, child support because I'm going to be in prison. She said, you can't do this. You have a court order. And I said, but I won't be able to fulfill it because I'll be in prison. She said, what about our, I'm not saying this now as a, a virtue of mine. I'm just saying this is what I, what I did face. Uh, and she said, what about your children's college education? I said, they're smart. They'll have to do the best they can. Uh, they will have. They, they did, in fact, get scholarships, uh, and they could have done it otherwise. But yes, for good or bad, you have to face that. And and yes, people close to me, actually, on my team, uh, my best friend Harry Rowan, the president of Rand, I knew was going to severely. Uh, challenge his career. And he was out of work for a couple of years, uh, largely due to me. But he got back in. He was head of Soviet, uh, he was head of the Intelligence Council at various times under Republican presidents. He was back again as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, maybe even Assistant Secretary. He had a good career afterwards. But I did cause him a lot of trouble for a couple of years. And he was my best friend. But I didn't see any way of doing it other than to, to do that. So, um, you know, you were, I don't know, I've gotten away, I'm sure, from, from the question. But uh, on the young, yes, where else to put hope? Not on their elders. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, so if the young don't do it for us, it won't happen. And that's probably what will happen. But not certainly. There is a possibility here, I think, of change. No one, no, none one of you, no one of me, nobody I know, can honestly say, like Putin the other day, if he believed it, maybe he was just talking. No, this is impossible. No, it's not impossible, Vladimir, that a war could uh, expand if you sink a British ship. No, they should not have ships in there to be fired at. Uh, no, the British are being totally stupid in that. Yes, they probably got their order, marching orders at least okayed by the American president. I'd say the likelihood that the American Biden was taken unawares by that British cruiser in the Black Sea is not impossible, but very low. I studied the Suez crisis. Uh, uh, everybody, I, I, from on a top secret basis, higher than top secret. So the British people didn't know that uh, Eden had conspired with the Is Israelis and uh, the French in France. Everybody in the world knew it because the Israelis and the French wrote memoirs about it. But Eden said, no, that didn't happen. So I, I discovered in Britain, and I, I, I earlier spent a year at King's College, Cambridge, but later in Britain at various conferences. And I discovered that Britons didn't know that they had conspired on Suez before. They didn't tell Eisenhower, which infuriated him. But did that mean he didn't know? No, of course, CIA was telling him what the British were doing. But uh, but he was furious that they were lying to him and uh, hoping to produce a fait accompli, which was 
they had to assume Eisenhower would like it. They knew, they must have known, unless they were you know, totally stupid, that his intelligence would, would reveal to him that they were lying to him officially, that they weren't invading Suez. I happened to be in Alexandria Harbor on a Marine troop ship taking all of the American immigrants, uh, all the American people, it, tourists in Egypt, out of Egypt, because they were getting bombed by the British and French. So uh, I, I was involved in that. I was reading cables at the time. So anyway, uh, everybody's lying to everybody. But Eisenhower is furious. Why? Because he clearly, uh, by all accounts, he has not told anybody what he knows, that they're moving toward invasion. So he hadn't given the American public any warning of this. It implied that he was stupid, that he didn't know. But it very seriously implied our closest allies had lied to him, and he'd been taken in. So he was furious. They said nobody was ever, they, they, he was given to anger, to rages, but they'd never seen a rage like this one. Uh, not because they'd actually, because of the second thing. They didn't get, they didn't succeed quickly. They didn't get to the canal. They got bogged down uh, after Port Said. And he kept saying, what is holding them up? He's saying inside, what is this? He couldn't just let them go week after week in aggression without doing anything about it, just before an election. So he had to say, no, we stand for international law. We're against aggression. That's why I joined the Marines. I was very happy with him then. He, my president, who I had not voted for, Republican, uh, Adlai, was standing up aggression against aggression, even against our allies. I was so proud of that. And I thought, that's why I joined the Marines, to be against aggression so forth. Uh, I was misled as to how deep our commitment was against aggression. Daniel, I cannot thank you enough. I think this was the most sobering and at the same time inspiring conversations that I have had um, potentially, yeah, potentially in my life. Thank you oh so, goodness. so much. No pressure on the next generation and on all of us to carry on the torch. Um, And happy birthday. Happy 90th birthday. And, and happy birthday and congratulations on the Pentagon release again. Um, I think that, yeah, we can only pull through and really try to carry on the torch. And, yeah, thank you very, very much for joining this group. Oh, thank you. I, wait, I have, I just revealed one, one more senior moment that I hadn't mentioned. There is a book just out called, I believe, The Precipice, which I, uh, there's another book uh, called Precipice by my friend Noam Chomsky. But this book on precipice is looking at existential risks. And many of you may have read it or, or will read it. Yes, we have. And obviously, the author is very intelligent. But what he focuses on, it turns out, is um, literally existential in risks that lead to full extinction. So he says the major thing to be concerned about is AI, robots that get out of our control, or pandemics, or uh, genetic engineering. Not nuclear. Uh, it's been over overstudied, over-concerned. We're all worried about nuclear, but he, uh, this is a paraphrase, but this is the way I read it. It's, that's not a big deal. Well, it's not what I'm talking about. Wait a minute. 
The basis for saying that is that the chance of total extinction from nuclear winter is very low. It's not zero, actually, as he almost implies. Alan Roebuck and Brian Toon, who are environmental scientists, say extremely unlikely that nuclear winter causes total extinction, something between 90 and 99 percent, but not 100 percent. You see, unless the ozone depletion uh, hits us harder and finishes off the job, which is not impossible. And by the way, I've alluded to the following thing a number of times, and let me just quickly spell it out. What Fermi was worried about was a physical process they had not allowed for. On the How did they misestimate the size of the Castle Bravo test on in March, I think it was, of 1994? Uh, I, I can get this wrong, being not a, a physicist. I, I can get this backwards, but it doesn't. It doesn't affect them anything. The fuel was a mixture of lithium-6 and lithium-7. And if I recall, and I can't keep this in my mind, which is the one that is not supposed... They used a mixture because it it cost too much to separate it, so I used the mixture. And one of them, I think it's lithium-7, I've forgotten, was not supposed to emit more neutrons when, uh, when the bomb went off. But it did. It wasn't inactive under the provocation, you might say, propagation of the lithium-6 or the other one. In other words, it did triple the explosion. Now, the reason I mention that is, again, smartest guys in the world here. There was a physical reaction that had never occurred on Earth before. So it hadn't occurred to them what the effect would be. After that, they knew, oh, both of these are active. Very good. Uh, so the area of uh, under which ships were not supposed to enter, which we marked off there rather illegally, but you know the zone uh, that you can enter, didn't include the Lucky Dragon uh, away, which got irradiated by the fallout, and they had to evacuate various of the Marshall Islands, and various things under because they had underestimated the amount of radiation. My only point is. Yes, you're doing things that have never happened before on Earth, and there are going to be there can well be aspects. What was the probability that that would be true? Fermi was saying something like ten percent. See, but you can't exactly you don't have a good basis for saying what's the probability we won't have allowed for something here. Uh, totally, it's not zero. So. Um, The first small two-sided nuclear war will be the first to have occurred. There has been a nuclear war, and it was one. When Reagan and Gorbachev and Biden and Putin all say nuclear war cannot be won, wrong. The only one that was ever fought was run. Now, it was against a non-nuclear state. And there are non-nuclear states in the world still. You could win a war against Iran, for example, cost of millions of dead, millions of innocent dead, but it's not going to blow the world up, almost surely. But a two-sided nuclear war, which John Bolton seems to have wanted, and by the way, Bolton seems by every account, no one discounts that he's a very bright guy, who seemed to want nuclear war with North Korea. Crazy. But that's not, that's my experience. So I used to say, anyone can be as dumb as he has to be to keep his job. Well, in Bolton's case, he was being insubordinate. 
Under every president, he was going beyond. He wanted to do things. In fact, he even got fired for it by uh, by Trump. But meanwhile, for a year, he'd been national security assistant, wanting to gamble on a nuclear war with uh, with North Korea. What's the chance that Kim, you know, has provided for decapitation attack by having a boat ready to sail or having already sailed sitting in San Francisco Harbor with a nuclear device aboard? And if they're out of communication and there's reason to believe that Kim has been destroyed by our special forces teams, which we have announced are ready to kill him, and by our cruise missiles and by everything else that's ready to go against him, if under those circumstances they don't get an order from Kim, they're out of communication, blow up San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Newport, everywhere. What's the chance that Kim has provided for that? Not zero. In fact, I put it fairly high. So, for my analogy, and the other states as well. So, um, let's be as smart as Adolf Hitler. Let's not do things that might destroy most human life on Earth. And even if, and people who are worried about extinction should expand our responsibilities to avoiding near extinction which made this smart book by a smart guy just make me, it disgusted me that he could take the trouble to write. That's not the problem to think about. Here's the problem to think about in a world where we're facing a Taiwan crisis that probably will not destroy all life on earth. That he's right about. That's idiotic as is so frequently the case. I say to all these people who are younger than I, so I'm not... <laughs> if anybody here over 90? Uh, anyway. So uh, you have heard me for good or bad. You are? Hey, very good. Vernon Smith, that's a name I know. Do we know each other from Rand? I mean, there was a Vernon Smith that I knew. Don't hear. Dan, I met you at Harvard. You may not remember that I was a graduate student, and it was through Floyd Gillis. Um, With who? Floyd Gillis, who I is the person that introduced me to you. I don't know whether you remember. But I, I do but definitely remember the name, Vernon. You were never at Rand, were you? Yeah. Vernon, maybe say a word about you. I'm sorry? Vernon, maybe say a word about you. Well, yes, I was at I was at Harvard uh, 1952 to 1955. You cla- I'm that, class of 52. Is that what class were you? You were class of leader. I was class of 55. Uh huh. But okay. I was at. Were you, you weren't there. Uh, were you in economics? And I was in the yes. Society of Fellows 57 to 59. So did no, we? we no, we met I, I met you, and of course. I've always been an admirer of your dissent. Uh, my view, however, is uh, that dissent is actually pretty much an important part of the American experiment. What, what is, I missed uh, the word, what is part? Dissent. Dissent, yes. Dissent is yes. very much a True. part yes. of the True. American experiment. Yes. In the first war, and I'm thinking now of the first world war, not the second, 
in the First World War, 2.8 million young men qualified for conscription. 300,000 uh, failed or refused to report. And the you recall that Eugene Victor Debs received a 10-year prison sentence under the not the, not the uh, Espionage Act, but the Sedition Acts, because you're, you're he very well made, informed. That's a distinction almost nobody knows. Yeah, you see, uh, Debs made a routine socialist speech opposing war in general. He never mentioned the First World War because he knew that if he did, he could be arrested. Hmm. He was arrested anyway. Anyway. <laughs> and yes, and received a 10-year uh, prison sentence. You see, I in those days, I was a socialist. I came, I was grew up in a socialist family. And of course, we were great admirers of, of Debs. Uh, Debs ran for president from his jail cell and polled nearly one million votes. And it wasn't because these were socialists. This, these were, this was coming from opposition to the First World War. And when the, the war ended, there were thousands of cases pending in the courts of people. I think it was around two or 3,000, which would have been larger than the 5,000 you mentioned relative to the population, you see. So that actually there was really substantial dissent in the First World War. Uh, this, and in fact, the, the Sedition Act, which was passed by Congress in the Woodrow Wilson administration, was repealed three years later. It was that outrageous. <laughs> Even Congress realized it when the war was over, you see. And, and, and so, so I see that part makes me optimistic. But what makes me pessimistic is we don't seem to be, a, this kind of dissent doesn't seem to be able to get to the point of really being effective. And so, Anyway, that's why I've been was very interested in your comments, Dan, about how we might try to be more effective, <laughs> and the need for people in positions of power to be willing to be to honor the Constitution. You see, and that's all you really have to do, right? I. Uh, I... Uh, Vernon, you're very well informed because uh, you're almost the first person I've heard who mentions Debs who is not under the misimpression that he was jailed under the same act I was, Espionage Act of 1917. As you know, he was jailed under amendments to the act passed in 1918, uh, generally known as the Sedition Act. Almost nobody knows that. We weren't the same person. Um, uh, also, uh, Emma Goldman and many others were deported. And uh, I'm kind of proud of the fact that my, um, although my father was a Republican who supported me, but uh, his father was an, an anarchist 
who had had an affair with Emma Goldman, which was <laughs> not an not an exclusive uh, club actually, but uh, still, I'm, I'm I'm quite proud of it. Generally, and she was of course kicked out of the country, um, very favorable to the Bolsheviks until she got there, and then managed to see right away that it, she got kicked out of there, as I recall. So uh, that how uh, un anarchistic, but how undemocratic they were. Anyway, anyway, uh, all this history. But yes, Debs is, by the way, <laughs> Walt Whitman Rostow, the one smart guy in Washington who agreed with the president that we, we had to win the war, along with Rusk, I should say, Richard Rusk, three of them. Walt Whitman Rostow was the brother of Eugene Victor Debs Roscoe. Did you know that? Who no, was in I this, didn't. Who was no. in the, you can imagine what their parents were like. Uh, and uh, uh, he was much more hawkish than his brother, Walt Rostow. So even good parent, even good genes here is not a, a real uh, protection. And uh, Debs was right. Unfortunately, he didn't stop the war. Nor did William Jennings Bryan, one of the very few people who actually resigned uh, from the government in order to oppose a war. Almost almost unique. Uh, Cy Vance was something like that uh, under Carter with the Iraq war. The uh, Iran, was it Iraq? What was that read? Um, was it Iran? Iran hostages. It was Iran. Yeah, Iran. Forgot that we made an attack on Iran. <laughs> so, um, uh, very rare. It hasn't, hasn't protected us yet from any of, any of these things. And looking back, the young of the sixties were just amazingly rebellious. Uh, and not just about one issue. There was, what they called the movement, as Vernon, you'll remember, I'm sure. Uh, mostly, and when we were looking for a place to elude the FBI while I was putting out the Pentagon Papers, the young Indian woman, Janaki Chanerl, who was helping that, and Gar Alperovitz, who was uh, dealing with the newspapers, um, just had to ask for help. We had maybe a dozen, 20 people, who most of whom had beards or had long hair, men and women. And you just had to ask, there's something we have to, we want to do here that might help shorten the war. And it's probably very risky politically, uh, legally. No one said no. Strictly speaking, there was one exception. One person said no. Others all said, fine, how can we help? So that was a marvelous feeling. And yes, there are young people like that now. And we, we, we rely on finding a way to make many more of them conscious of that and get their elders to act. Actually, such elders as did act, even internally, were often very influenced by their children or their wives. I asked McNaughton once, what does your wife think of what we're doing? And he looked up from his work and he said, oh, she thinks we're crazy. She thinks what we're doing is insane. And by the way, he thought that too. He agreed with her. But it got done. So that's the part of human uh, nature. It's pretty ingrained, but uh, maybe we can find a way out of it. Given the stakes, everything is at stake. And yes, no doubt from AI and genetic modeling and drones 
And, you know, a lot of you, I'm sure, are working on AI for drones and so forth. Putin has put a drone torpedo under the water, which can't, uh, which we can't stop with our ABM system, which Russian newspapers have said carries a 200 megaton warhead. Now, other newspapers and our intelligence said, oh, no, much smaller, maybe 20 megatons, maybe two megatons, maybe one megaton. But they have all said maybe 200. Any of those create a tsunami of radioactive water against the port. Chicago is safe from this, but uh, nobody on the coastline is safe from it. It's a drone. It goes underwater. It can sneak under there, and it can lie there indefinitely. That is a very good weapon against our ABM systems, if you needed it. It absolutely negates the ABM, as far as our coastline is concerned. Is it really a good idea to have in, uh, 200 megaton or 2 megaton drones sitting off our harbors indefinitely, like unexploded mines in, in Germany, uh, unexploded bombs that still exist by the thousands, which they're occasionally evacuating a city for, half of Hamburg, while they detonate uh, a new 750-pound bomb they found, or a 1,000-pound bomb. And uh, once in a while, some one of them does go off. Accidentally, and that happens in Vietnam all the time with uh, with mines go off. So I don't think that's a good idea for Putin, even though it's quite clever answer to our ABM system. Should should that exist? Look up Poseidon on the web and see whether uh, you would be glad to be a scientist who worked on that on that hot item. So uh, everywhere we look, you know, uh, do I think that? Uh, do I think that she ought to invade Taiwan on the assumption that we won't, after all, uh, carry out our commitments to fight him on that? Should he invade Taiwan because they declare independence? He said he would. Well, many China experts tell me she or any other China leader would lose office if he failed to respond to a declaration of independence. And the, the president of Taiwan, a woman, has, has said cautiously, prudently, we don't need to declare independence. We are independent. Hmm. So she hears that and thinks, hmm, they're pushing the envelope here, but maybe I will not lose office if I don't invade on that one. Uh, but supposing Biden does say, we're, gonna, we're all in on this. American bases are back. I don't think the construction goes very far on those American bases before uh, they get invaded, and we'll see what happens. So, uh, and she, I'm sure, is saying, oh, they won't go to nuclear war. They know they can't win. That's true. Sink an American cruiser or carrier with a Chinese non-nuclear missile and see what happens. Who knows? But I don't want to find out. So let's object to that, even with Biden, who is tremendously better than Trump, but that's too low a bar. And uh, uh, try to assure that under no circumstances should we initiate nuclear war anywhere, even for Taiwan, anywhere in the world. Enough of that and stop with the missiles and the ICBMs that are for nothing other than to back up that threat. Thank you. 
Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah.